Well, hey everyone, you're tuned in to the Philippi Sermons Podcast. We're currently in a series through the book of Acts. If you want more information about our church, head over to philippichurchgp.com. There you can also find a link to our other Conversations podcasts, where we interview people and have Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused conversations. Hey, may the Lord bless you and speak to you as you take in His Word. I'm going to open with a quote. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you like to pronounce it, said the following. He said, I was in misery, and misery is the state of every soul overcome by friendship with mortal things and lacerated when they are lost. Let me read that again because I know that's old speak. He said, I was in misery, and misery, he defines as, the state of every soul overcome by friendship with mortal things and lacerated when they are lost. Have you ever had a particular moment in your life uh, where someone said something, did something that just struck a nerve? And it elicits this reaction to what they did or what they said uh, that almost catches you off guard. You're almost like surprised by how you reacted. Wow, what did they, did they just hit a nerve? What was that? Have you ever done that to someone else? I remember one time sitting with, uh, with someone who was on my worship team uh, when I was a worship leader, and uh, they were expressing to me how they really felt jilted because I would never let them sort of lead and be the, the, the lead person. And I said, you know, uh, I, and maybe I shouldn't have said this, I don't know, but I just felt the spirit prompting me to, to kind of let them know. He's like, I just don't think that's your thing, man. Like, you just, you can't, you can't sing very well. You're a little, you're a little pitchy. Uh, and, uh, and then I realized after I said it that this, this guy had been working his entire life to be sort of like a front man for a, a band. And uh, it, was, it was really like the, the, the chief desire of his heart. And I did not realize I just like crushed him. And it just, it just started this whole, just this kind of whole issue between him and I. It just, it was a real mess. Um, but any of you uh, ever had that before where, where like you say something and you're like, whoa, I did not realize I just hit a nerve there. Uh, what was that all about? Uh, it's funny, I, I recently went and got my wisdom teeth pulled out. Um, I guess it's been a, a year or two now. And when I went in, they, uh, they told me, you know, you should have got these out. You should have got these out about 15 years ago. Uh, so for that reason, the, the roots of the wisdom teeth have really, they've really gotten deep. So removing these things, it's kind of risky. Uh, for me, the only risk was that I would lose some uh, potential, some feeling in my face, which sure enough, I did. I literally can't feel this part of my face. Uh, so if I start drooling while I'm teaching, you'll know why. Um, but they said if they get, if you wait way too long, if you wait way too long, that it's, it's actually could be fatal because the roots of those teeth actually wrap themselves around different parts of your, your jaw and can actually cause like literally fatal damage. So they literally won't remove them if they grow too long. And the same thing is true with the idols of our heart. The same thing is true of things that we allow into our life and we begin to grow our affections towards them. They start out small, but the roots of those things begin to wrap themselves around every part of our DNA. Let me give you an example. So let's say, and this is probably a story that most of us can relate with. Uh, it's hypothetical, but let's just say that uh, you're, um, you're a young person and uh, you're, you're sort of awkward. Uh, 
Okay, that's, that's basically me. Okay, uh, you're a young person. You're sort of awkward. You don't feel like you fit in. You don't really know where, uh, where your purpose is. You don't know who you want to be. Um, and uh, you just don't know where you fit. Uh, but then you stumble across, at some point in your childhood, you stumble across a hobby. Um, and you find out that you're pretty good at that hobby. And it starts to become sort of this, uh, you know, I don't need to use a hypothetical. Let me tell you my story. Okay, when I was a kid, I'm like talking about this hypothetical person. This is really just me. Okay. Um, when I was a kid, uh, I felt that. I was like, where do I fit? I'm not as good at certain things as my, my friends. I was never super good at sports or anything like that. Um, and then at some point, uh, I hit this point where I go, yeah, I'm pretty good at music. Hey, music's something that I'm pretty good at. And at first, it was really enjoyable. I spent time playing the drums. I learned how to play the guitar. Uh, and it was this thing that I just enjoyed. It was an enjoyable part of my life. Um, and I found recognition in it. I found identity in it. I found sort of a sense of worth in it. I found a friend group, a subculture, some belonging in it. So I got really into it. Before you know it, I'm spending all of my time on music. I'm spending all of my um, sort of bandwidth trying to get better as a musician. And I start realizing, hey, people start to think of me as the music guy. I'm the music guy. Oh, there's Sam. He's the band guy, right? Uh, and and I've, I've sort of fused my enjoyment of this hobby now into my identity. Now this is who I am. And the better I got and the more I progressed, the more I started to notice a severe anxiety welling up in me. And uh, it was interesting. I thought, well, the anxiety must be because I need to be better at it. That must be the anxiety. I need to, I need to progress more. I need to get past these barriers. I need to practice more. Then my anxiety will go away. So I practiced more. I worked harder. Uh, I, I spent more of myself in this particular thing. And the more I spent, the more anxious I got. And I started to realize that, looking back, um, that the reason I was so anxious was because I was fearful that I wouldn't actually ever get to what I was trying to get to. And so that fear drove me to work harder. But the harder I worked, the more the fear welled up that maybe this thing isn't going to satisfy me. Maybe if I make it big, maybe if I get famous, maybe if all my dreams come through, true, those dreams actually won't make me happy. So I just have to work even harder. The reality of your idol and the idea of your idol sometimes clash. And they leave a pretty giant train wreck. So the problem is, is that the things that we... Um, wrap our hearts around, they, they're kind of like cancerous tumors. They start small. They're just things that we enjoy. They exist to serve us. And then the more that we sort of invest ourselves into them, something starts to switch. They don't serve us anymore. We start to serve them. Have you ever had that in your life? Maybe it's your career. Your career existed to serve you, put food on your table. But then you started working so much that you started serving your career. Maybe it's an identity. Maybe it's uh, an idea of who you are. Maybe you think you're good at something. And at first, that hobby was just something enjoyable. But over time, it began to consume your heart and your affections to where you serve it rather than it serving you. This, my friends, this is idolatry. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And this is why I read this quote by Augustine that I'll read again now. I was in misery, and misery is the state of every soul overcome by friendship with mortal things and lacerated when they are lost. I think most of us can probably relate with that. Now in our text, I think we have a really clear example of exactly this, the nerves of the tooth, right? Wrapping deep and in, in, in just, just, just fusing themselves to our hearts. We have a great example of that. So open it up, Acts 21, starting in 27. Let me give you the backdrop if you haven't been tracking with us through this book. Uh, of Acts, essentially Paul finally made his way back to Jerusalem 
Jerusalem, uh, obviously where the uh, kind of the center of the Christian movement, where it all started, right, uh, with Pentecost. Paul finally makes his way back after three missionary journeys. He's, over the last few years, been collecting a, uh, an offering from all of the Gentile churches in order to bring that to the Jerusalem church so that he could sort of show uh, an act of unity and solidarity between the Jewish and the Gentile um, sects of the churches. Okay, so that's basically what he is doing. He finally shows up. We saw it last week. He goes before James, the apostle, and the other elders, and he brings the offering, um, and they rejoice, and they praise the Lord for all the good report of all the things, uh, essentially, that have happened. And James uh, suggests kind of this odd thing. He says, you know, Paul, the word on the street is, uh, is that everybody thinks you are against the law, that you hate the Jewish law, that you're telling people not to get circumcised, etc. This is kind of an odd thing. But James says, hey, why don't you go down to the temple? And there's four, four of our guys right now, four of our Jewish Christians uh, that are about to take a Nazarite vow. Why don't you join them? Why don't you pay the tab? Why don't you get them a haircut, pay for their sacrifices? And Paul says, okay, he does it. And we talked about that last week. It was an opportunity to discuss unity, uh, when to um, sort of stand firm and when to sort of give way on certain things. Uh, and that, one is an, that was an interesting um, idea in, in conversation. But today, Paul, he's in the temple. He's on the seventh day of the Nazarite vow. He's in the temple with these four Jewish men um, and something really gnarly happens. Okay, so verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Okay, so a couple things here. Uh, imagine that you, uh, you had someone that you just didn't get along with, they didn't like you, and if you saw him, it got real awkward, real tense, real violent, real quick. Uh, but they live somewhere far away, so big deal. But then you go to a conference, and people are coming from all around the state and all around the nation to come to this conference, and it just so happens that they pick you out of the crowd. Okay, uh, that starts a problem. So Paul had issues with the Ephesian uh, Jewish people, if you remember. The Ephesian Jewish people did not like Paul. In fact, they tried to have him killed um, when he was in Ephesus. And it just so happens that they are in Jerusalem when Paul's in Jerusalem. Why? Because it's Pentecost. And Pentecost was a pilgrimage. A lot of Jews would come from all around um, Judea and Palestine and sort of uh, the larger area. They would come into Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. These guys happen to be there and they see Paul, their enemy. They see him in the temple and they instantly grab and stir up a mob, a crowd, uh, in order to try um, to, to see him uh, arrested and killed. So it's essentially what's happening. What's interesting is that they're accusing him of being against the laws. We'll see. Yet Paul is in the temple doing, uh, going through this Nazarite vow itself, which is interesting. Verse 28. So crying out, they say, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. We'll come back to that. Moreover, they accuse, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So their accusation against Paul is that he brought a Greek into the temple. Now, maybe you're thinking, what does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Well, you need to understand the layout, the geographical layout of Herod's temple. There were different courts, and those different courts were assigned to different people. Okay, there was the outermost court, which was considered the court of the Gentiles. Gentile just means non-Jew. 
and that was where Gentiles and uh, God-fearers and proselytes could, could come and could worship. Uh, that's where Jesus was furiously flipping tables over and, and, and frustrated because it had turned into a den of thieves, if you remember. And from there, there was the court of the women, Jewish women. And then in from there was the court of the Jews. Now, there was a wall about Yehi between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And they've found signs in recent archaeological digs. They've found signs that stated any Gentile that enters this court will forfeit his life. So the Jews were basically saying, if you walk from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the Jews, you are dead. <laughs> that's, how, that's how serious they were about it. So the accusation is that Paul, this Gentile lover, right? This guy who's always hanging out with these guys that eat bacon all day, right? He, he, he's, he's, he's accused of bringing a, a Greek into, of bringing a Greek into the Jewish um, court. And of course, this did not happen. It says that specifically that it's a speculation. Um, so, so we know that. But that's the accusation. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and people ran together. So we're talking a giant mob now. There's just tension in the air. Have you ever been uh, around tension? I remember in Jerusalem, actually, when I was visiting there, it was during the day of Israel's uh, uh, liberation. And the Palestinians hate, they hate the celebrations that happen in Jerusalem centered around the day of liberation because it basically means that they think it's the day Israel stole their country. So, so there's just tension. And we were there, there was literally like a riot and a mob that happened on the Temple Mount. And there was just police and SWAT everywhere. It was just tense. You could just feel it uh, everywhere that you went. And that's kind of the feel, feeling here in, in Jerusalem in this moment. A massive mob gathers. They just start beating Paul. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that's the Romans, that all Jerusalem was in confusion. 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be, they're beating Paul. They're probably going to kill him. So the Romans see the mob. It's their job to police things. So they insert themselves into the situation. Uh, they grab Paul, essentially rescuing him and arresting him at the same time. And as they're arresting him, uh, they, they lead him away out of the mob. In verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing. Oh, pardon me, 33. The tribune came up, arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. So they arrest him and then they say, who are you? Why is everyone trying to kill you? What's going on? Verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, like mobs do. You know, they're just shouting out accusations. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. Most commentators think they had to carry him up the steps because he was so beat up. They just beat the snot out of him, man. Poor Paul. That guy just got beat up all the time. Verse 36, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And we're going to stop there. And you might be thinking that's an interesting passage to stop on. Um, but I think there's a question here that we need to ask. I think the question is, is why are, why are these Jewish people so mad at Paul to the point where they literally, the second they see him, they grab a mob of people and they have basically try to beat him up and have him killed. I mean, what, what is up with this reaction? This just seems a little intense, a little intense. And the answer 
And I want to suggest to you, and I'll kind of set the table for our topic. The answer is idolatry. The answer is idolatry. Now, you might be saying, there's no idols in the temple. There were no idols in the temple ever since the Jewish exile, right? Uh, the Jewish exile, they learned their lesson. They didn't put any more statues in the temple. So, so how can idolatry be uh, the issue, you might be asking? Well, take a look at verse 28. Look a little bit more closely at their accusation against Paul. The reason that they're beating him up specifically. So they cry out, 28, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against three things. Note it. The people, the law, and the temple. The people and the law and the temple. This is their accusation. This guy needs to die because he is against our nation, our people, which is our nation, our laws, and our temple. Now, those three things are good things. They were gifts given to the Jewish people by Yahweh. He gave them their national identity. He called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, said, you will be my people. Okay, Israel was God's firstborn. Okay, he, 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 he called them his son, Israel. Uh, the law was a gift, wasn't it? God gave them his law so that they would know how to worship him appropriately, so that they could be the stewards of God's uh, wisdom and, and, and truth and knowledge and communication. And the temple, God gave them the temple as a gift, as a conduit, a means by which for them to access his presence. So these are all good things. They're all good things. But the interesting thing about this moment is that the gift of those three things, the national, the national identity of Israel, the temple, the law, those three things had become their God. They'd become their God. Uh, Instead of seeing them as things to get them to God, they actually made them their God. God gave them these gifts to his kids, and they began to worship the gifts. Isn't that exactly what we do? God gives us good things so that we can glorify him with them, and then we take those good things and we worship them. It's the oldest trick in the book. The means became the end. In other words, God gave them the temple to get to him. And instead, they worship the temple. God gave them their national identity to get to him. Instead, they worship their national identity. Apostasy is the church being more about the expression of worship than about the person we worship. Are you with me? Idolatry happens when we take the thing God gave us to worship him with, and we worship it. I mean, how often does that happen in church? We worship the idea of how we do church. We worship church itself. We worship our traditions. We worship our orthodoxy. We worship our methodology. And all the time, the Lord is sitting back going, uh, this stuff was supposed to be about me. Think about the, uh, the, the churches with the grand cathedrals, right? The massive, beautiful churches. Those churches were designed to give attention to God. And largely now, those churches have become places with very little spiritual life. And those churches themselves have become the God. It's crazy. And this is exactly what happened with Israel. They had made the temple and made their national identity and made the law. They had made it God and all the while completely forgetting about God himself. Their identity was in who they were, not in whose they were. It was in who they were, not in whose they were. They had found so much pride in being the Jews, being the people that had the book, people, the people that had the temple. 
You can sense it in the Samaritan woman when Jesus talks to her. She can just, you can just smell the disdain that the Jews had for her because they had the temple. The Jews in, the, in Judea and the South, they had the temple. They had the law. These guys worshiped the things that God gave them as an access point for him. We know this because when God himself came to the temple, what did they do? They killed him. They killed him. Why? Because God himself was threatening their idols. You know, the primary reason that Jesus was put to death was because they thought he was threatening the temple. Remember that? He taught about that. He said, I'm going, uh, this temple will be destroyed, speaking of his body, of course, but also prophesying the destruction of the temple. And that was the linchpin, man. That was the moment that the Sanhedrin that was basically making money hand over fist and the Sadducees, they saw this Jesus, he is trying to take down our temple operation. And our temple operation is the crown jewel of our existence. People come to Jerusalem to see the temple. They walk into Jerusalem, they see this magnificent temple, and they think, wow, the Israel, Israel is great. Wow, the Jewish people are great. But not, wow, God is great, right? So God himself comes into his temple, and he threatens the idol of the temple. He threatens the idol of the law. He threatens the, the idol of the national pride of Israel, and so they kill him. So how do you know when you've made an idol? You're ready to kill for it. You're ready to kill for it. The Jewish people had made an idol out of what God gave them to worship him. Now, this is why Paul is greeted with such severity. It's why they want him dead, because Paul threatened the idol of the Jewish people. Now, having said that, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this idea of idolatry. Okay, uh, and we're going to look at it from three different angles. I want to talk about the definition of idolatry. I want to talk about the diagnosis of idolatry. In other words, how do we know uh, when we've made an idol? And then I want to talk about the treatment. Definition, the diagnosis, and the treatment. So start with the definition. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when something created to serve us becomes something served by us. Does that make sense? It's something that, that was originally something to serve you, but then at some point you begin serving it. You ever had that in your life? Paul Tripp says this. He says, could it be that desire for a good thing has become a bad thing because that desire has become a ruling thing? So a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing, something that now controls you, something that you can't live without, something that determines what you do, how you live, how you think, how you act. That's when something becomes an idol. Idolatry is the shifting of the heart's affections from creator to creation. From God himself, the creator of things, to the things that he created. That's idolatry. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional savior, he calls it. Functional savior. The thing that you look to to deliver you. The thing that you look to to deliver you. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be, right? Whatever you give yourself to, you expect to receive from. Whatever you give yourself to, that's your God. That's your savior. That is idolatry. There's a reason if you go back to the 10 commandments that the first of the 10 is you shall have no idols. <laughs> okay. Uh, the reason is because if you can keep that one, you'll actually keep all of them. 
If you can keep that one, that one is the reason for all other sins. Idolatry is pregnant with all other sins. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, idolatry is attached to everything. All our bitterness, all our impurity, all our malice, all our problems, everything that troubles us is a result of idolatry. And what is idolatry? It's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Okay? Idolatry happens the second that you expect something to be more than it ever could possibly be. That's idolatry. So there's your definition. Now let's talk about the diagnosis. The important question I'm wanting you to ask yourself today is, do I have areas in my life of idolatry? And if if the answer is no, I guarantee you're probably just not looking. So I want to help you look. This may feel uncomfortable, but I want to help you. I want to help you diagnose. A good doctor helps you diagnose. Take a look at your symptoms. Try to figure out what's going on. Okay, so here's some things to think through uh, to decide if you're diagnosing an idol. Because like these Jews who are about to kill Paul, they have some serious idolatry going on. And we want to be aware of it. So here's some things to look for in yourself. How do I know if I have an idol? Well, the thing that your grip begins to tighten on when it's removed, that's probably an idol. Okay, remember I, I talked about in the introduction, you, you notice these responses in yourself that are kind of unrealistic. Uh, I'll give you an example. I had a week a, a while ago, a few months back, uh, where there were just multiple times where I, uh, people were telling me things that were discouraging about me personally. Uh, there, was, there was a comment about my preaching and how it was, it was sort of just average and boring. And then the same week I got a comment about how someone thought that our church plant wasn't really going to make it. And then the same week, someone was trying to give me some constructive criticism about how I I do that. It was just, it was all fine. It was all stuff that just is part of life. But I noticed this response in myself where it spun me out. It's like I was a little guy in a snow globe and somebody was shaking it. It was like my whole world all of a sudden was just like, uh, and I'm like, I'm just depressed and I'm down and I'm like, what is wrong with me? So a couple of people gave me some negative things. Get over it. Like that's just part of life, right? That's part of leadership. Uh, and it, what it did was it exposed in me an idol. It exposed in me an idol because what I noticed was that I started clamping down on this idea of who I was and what I was going to do and what I had done as soon as somebody challenged it. Rather than me being like, yeah, you're, you're right, man. I, my teachings are pretty boring. I, I, by God's grace, I get to do this at all. Instead, I went, well, what do they don't know anything? What do they know, right? They just, they just, they're just wrong. What am I doing? I'm fighting for my idol in that moment. I'm going to bat for my idol. My idol is what, um, how I'm perceived, whether I'm good at something. And it's, it's no surprise. Whatever you spend the majority of your time on, it's probably your idol. If you spend the majority of your time growing your business, that's probably your idol. If you spend the majority of your time, like I do, preparing sermons, someone tells you they don't like them, that's probably your idol. That's probably the thing that you worship. That's just the reality. Whatever your grip tightens down on, there's a clear example of this in the New Testament when Jesus interacts with a young man, a young man who was successful, rich, affluent, and moral from the outside. He comes up to Jesus asking him, "Uh, Lord, how do I obtain eternal life, right? And Jesus says, what does the law say? The young man quotes some, uh, some law and he says, all of this I've kept from my youth. Jesus is like, great, good job, well done. One thing you lack, he says, sell everything you have and come with me. What Jesus is doing in that moment is he's putting his finger right on the nerve of this young man's idol. It was his money. It wasn't just his money, it was his position. 
It was how people looked at him. It was how he lived. It was his lifestyle. And Jesus said, okay, so if you really want me, then show it by giving up the things that you really want. Show me what you really want. What is it that you really want? Is that a Spice Girl song? Tell me what you want, what you really, really want. Sorry. Wow. Okay. I got to get out behind this from behind this camera. Okay. Another way to consider whether you have an idol. The thing that your neural and cognitive pathways have formed rivers of thought towards. The thing that your neural and cognitive pathways have formed rivers of thought towards. How do you know if you have an idol? What do you think about all the time? What are you consumed with? Uh, Tim Keller says this. He says, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What does your mind just automatically go to? And just like water, you know, water, when you let it run, it just naturally forms ruts. And it's easy when those ruts have been formed for the water to go right back through those ruts again. We have neural pathways that we form, and oftentimes they lead right to our idols. And Tim Keller's point is that whenever your brain isn't having to focus on something, where does it go? That's probably telling of what your idol is. What do you go to sleep and wake up thinking about? That's not wrong to think about things. It's not wrong to ponder things. But what do we run to? What about this? You begin, lo- or you begin making large sacrifices in your life to keep this thing, to keep it going, to keep it growing, right? Large sacrifices like this. You find yourself willing to lie in order pr- to preserve it. Okay, that's a, that's a really, really, really severe sign that you've created an idol. If you're willing to lie in order to keep that idol, you find yourself willing to cash in relational equity to preserve it. Meaning you're, you're literally willing to just kind of throw your friendships to the side because that thing has become so important to you. You have excellent excuses and justifications for it. It's a sure sign of an idol. No, this is a good thing. Like ministry is the sneakiest idol, man. Because, oh, it's ministry. I'm helping people. It's good, right? I work for a nonprofit. It's good. Okay, that, it is good. But if you make a good thing, a God thing, it's bad, right? That's the reality. How about this? It begins to form you in its image. You start looking like it. How about this one? Your prayers are affected by it. If you start noticing that you're praying for God to let you keep your idol more than you're praying for God to deal with your idols, you're praying for your idol, or you avoid praying about it at all because you're afraid God might ask you to give it up, something to think about. You find yourself running to it as soon as you feel sad or down. What do you run to? As soon as you start to feel a little down, we all have those moments in our day, one o'clock, okay, your dopamine starts to shut down, like your, your energy levels start to give, you get a little sleepy, a little tired, I feel a little sad. What do you run to? What is it? Is it food? Social media? Shopping? Buying stuff? I remember hearing a story years ago about a gal who uh, had completely spent so many credit cards that they literally had to repossess her entire house. They show up to repossess her house and they couldn't even get in the door because it was six feet tall with Amazon boxes that she never opened. (laughs) She never even opened them. She was addicted to clicking buy, buy now, click. That was her thing, right? Could be image. How do people perceive me? What am I wearing? Do I look the part? Do I look the way I want people to think that I am? Could be working out. Could be friendships. How many friends do I have? How, much, how many people like me? Do people like me? Am I the guy everybody likes? Could be sex. Could be learning. 
could be making money, could be success, collecting things, traveling experiences. Now, these are all fine things. These are amoral things. They're not evil things. And that's why they're so pervasive. Because I think we think because these are not blatantly immoral things, therefore we are allowed to run to them. But the problem is, is that they become our functional savior, as Martin Luther says. They become the thing we run to and look to to get us out of our moment of sadness or depression. And as we do that, we begin to build these ruts, these neural pathways, where we are just now so prone to run. I feel sad, pick up my phone. I feel sad, pick up my phone. I feel sad, go eat something. Go through the drive-thru, whatever it is. Now, those things are not in and of themselves evil, but they become our gods and we serve them. We serve them when we make too much of them. Richard Baxter said, the most dangerous mistake that our souls are capable of is to take the creature for God and earth for heaven. It's, it's the most, the, the largest mistake that we could ever make. If you're experiencing a deep emptiness right now, or even a shallow emptiness, the odds are that you have made too much of something and that that something cannot deliver for you. And you're feeling like, I, I just don't understand why I feel sad, so I'm gonna keep running to this thing thinking that it's gonna help me and it's just not going to work. There was a sin cycle that happened in Israel and it was all related to idolatry. Israel would invite idols into their nation. Why would they do that? I do that because they look at the other nations and they think, well, these guys look so much happier than us. You know, they'd invite their gods, they would amalgamate their gods, they'd syncretize their gods, and they'd bring them, you know, uh, for the majority of Israel's life, they had a, literally a, a, a false statue of a god in the temple, in the holy place. They would do that, and then what would happen is they would begin to have to serve those gods, and it would enslave them in, into, into literally slavery. So they would cry out to Yahweh, and then Yahweh in his grace would, would deliver them from those idols, and then a matter of 30, 40 years would go by a generation, and they would forget again, and they would invite idolatry back into their life, and they would cry out to God. It's the whole book of Judges. It's just a cycle of our hearts because our hearts are idol-making factories, we are so prone to worship everything other than God because of our fallen nature. Man, everything that starts out like a good and life-giving thing, if we give it too much, it becomes our God. We begin to serve it. So hopefully that helps you a little bit. And I'll just say this, by the way, that moral idols are the most dangerous because no one will judge you for them. Nobody judges you for moral idols. It's the immoral ones that we don't, that we watch out for, but we should be watching out for the moral ones. Okay, so lastly, let's talk about treatment. How do we deal with our idols? How do we deal with our idols? First of all, I'll say this, treat it, don't trade it. Treat it, don't trade it. And what I mean by that is don't just get rid of one God for another one. It's kind of like the guy that's like, I'm gonna quit smoking. You're like, good, awesome. And then you see him in three days and he's got a big dip in his mouth. <laughs> You're like, you didn't, you didn't quit smoking. You just started chewing, right? Like you didn't really deal with that. You just started a new thing. Uh, the problem is, is a lot of times we get rid of one idol in order and we just fill that space immediately with another idol. We just fill it immediately with another idol. Admit that you have it. That's really the first step. Admit that you have an idol. This is where confession um, to the body, to the Lord uh, is so key. Being able to say to the Lord, being able to say to your brothers and sisters, I think I've made too much of something here. 
I think I've made too much of it, and, and, I'm, and I'm looking for you to help me, pray for me as I steer the affections of my heart away from it. But here's the real answer. The real answer for treating our idols and our love for them is this. You cannot love created things less. You have to love the creator more. You can try until you're blue in the face to start loving the things you love less. Okay, whatever your hobby is, whatever your thing is, whatever you find joy in, you can try to love that thing less, but the reality is the harder you try, the more you'll love it. The answer to idolatry is not falling out of love with this world, it's falling into love with the one that created this world. And as you do that, you will begin to see your grip on your idol lessen. Jesus was trying to get at this when he talked about, he wasn't trying to, he was getting at it. When he gave the parable of the treasure in the field, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a man that goes into a field and he finds a treasure and he's so overwhelmed with joy that he goes home, sells all that he has and buys the whole field. It's finding something of greater value. It's the only way that we'll love this world less. That's why religion doesn't work. That's why moralism doesn't work. That's why pick yourself up by your own bootstraps theology doesn't work. You can try all you want to make your heart love this world less. It simply won't work. You have to love something more, more. John Piper says that God is the greatest thing that exists, ever has existed or ever will. For us to glory in anything else would be sin. As there is nothing greater than God, there is no calling greater than praising God. It was John Piper, actually, that helped me realize uh, years back um, that you can take the most beautiful, astounding, glorious, captivating thing that you can possibly think of, the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen, the most amazing moment you've ever had, the most um, just ecstatic joy you've ever felt, and, and that thing was created by a greater source of joy. God created the things you enjoy, therefore he is greater than the things you, you enjoy. So go to the source. Don't stop at the created thing. Augustine also said, I inquired what wickedness is. And I didn't find a substance, but a perversity of will twisted away from the highest substance. In other words, all sin is really just settling for something other than God. That's why I said all of the commandments are fulfilled if you, if you follow the first one. If you make too little of God, you will look to other gods. If you make enough of God, the other gods will not come into your life. The more you see of God, the more you will love God. And only when our hearts are delighted on the superior joy of him will our hands let go of the inferior joy of the things in this world. So this is the question, though, and we'll end here, is how can we steer the affections of our heart toward God? If the answer to idolatry is, is seeing him and seeing, uh, getting our affections on him, how do we do that? How do we do that? We need to fill our screen, fill our screen with Jesus. Okay, we need to fill our screen with Jesus. Here's an example. Uh, when I set up the cameras this morning, I put myself in frame. Uh, what I mean by that is I put myself in such a way that I filled the screen to the point where I became the subject of that screen because the point of you guys watching this is that we're communicating, is that, that, I'm, uh, that you're able to, to listen and focus. So what is filling your screen? What is in focus? What's in frame in your life right now? If you have the Lord down here in the bottom left corner, filling up 5% of your screen and 95% of your screen is your business or 95% of your screen is your family or 95% of your screen is your money or your image or whatever the thing is, good or bad, then God is not in frame. 
And if God is not in frame, he's not filling your screen. If he's not filling your screen, you can't see how good he is. If you can't see how good he is, you're not going to look to him to be your joy. You're going to look to whatever's filling your screen. We need to fill our screen with him. That's why we worship. That's why we worship. That's why we remind ourselves. We speak truth to ourselves of who God is, what he's done, all that he's done. We become thankful for all that he's done. We relinquish our need. Our need tells us that we need an idol. Our thankfulness tells us that we have everything that we need. We engage and press into worship, fellowship, and prayer. We fill our screen with him. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I said to all the things that throng about the gateways of the senses. It's another way of saying your screen. Tell me of my God, since you are not he. Tell me something of him. And they cried out in a great voice, he made us. I got to read that again because it's so good. He says, I said to all the things that throng about the gateways of the senses, tell me of my God, since you are not he. Tell me something of him. And they cried out in a great voice, he made us. In other words, every good thing that you enjoy, every good thing that you look to, if it could speak, it would tell you of the one that created it. It would tell you that you think I'm good? Look at the one that made me. Why do you think things are good in the world? Because a good God made them. Why do you think we like glory in this world? Because a glorious God made glory. Don't stop with the thing. Go to the one that made the thing. Go to the one that made the thing. Spurgeon said, the bottle of the creature cracks and dries up, but the well of the creator never fails. Happy is he who dwells at the well. Happy is he who dwells at the well. I know all of us right now are feeling some measure of anxiety. I know all of us right now are feeling a measure of uncertainness. And I guarantee you that all of us right now have had an uptick in our idolatry. All of us right now have, have increased and turned up the, the level of idolatry in our lives. We're looking to more things to satisfy us because we feel more uncertainty, because we feel more anxiety. More than ever right now, we as Christians need to remember what our true joy is, who our true source is, who our true God is, who we truly worship. It is not the stuff of this world. Now, maybe you're saying, Sam, we know this. This is old news. We know about idolatry. I've heard this before. Okay. Okay. But when was the last time you sat down and examined your heart before the Lord and said, God, if there be any wicked way in me, when's the last time you sat down and said, God, what have I made too much of? How can I, how, how can I fill my screen more with you? For those of you that are just checked out right now, tune in, listen to me, listen to me. It is important that you stop and you ask the question, God, what have I made too much of? What have I made too much of? And the answer is not to simply love that thing less. The answer is to invite more of God's glory and more of God's goodness into your life today. That is the gospel. That he is the ultimate joy. He is the ultimate reward. May he be that treasure in the field for you today. That is you're sweating and digging and just trying to make scraps from the table that your shovel would go clunk, hitting the ultimate treasure in the universe. And you wouldn't just leave it in the ground that you would dig it up and you would feast and you would enjoy it. You would enjoy it. And we press into God today. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to enjoy him. I was sitting with some bros last night, just around the fire sharing, praying for each other, encouraging each other. And every single one of us said the same thing. We just were so 
edified, so encouraging. I think it was Steve or one of the guys who said, isn't it funny how it's always the same thing that brings the joy? It's always the, God's always right where we left him. He's, he's right there. If we just bring him in, just bring him into the conversation, bring him into our life, bring him into our mind, bring him into our focus. He's always faithful to be there. He's always just as enjoyable as he was last time. We just leave him out of the screen. We leave him out of the picture. Bring him into focus. Put him in the frame. Set your sights and your joys higher than the things of this world can possibly deliver. Father, we thank you so much this morning that you are greater than the stuff of this world. God, you created a good world and there's a lot of good things in it. You created good things like relationships, parenting, marriage. All these things are good. But Lord, we just stop and recognize that you are the creator and the source of those good things, that you're better than those things. Lord, check our hearts today. Lord, like the song says we do, we cast down our idols. We ask that your glory would fill our temple, that nothing else or no one else would sit on the throne of our hearts. Father, we just pray for our church as we move into this next season of being able to gather in homes. We just pray for grace and favor. I pray, Lord, that everyone would be able to get situated into a group, get to know new people. Um, Father, we just thank you for the book of Acts and all that we've learned. I pray for our church today, Lord, as we go about our day. You would bless us. You would draw us close to yourself that, Lord, we would be those that believe the gospel, believe in your love, and are driven by it. Father, we do love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.